The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We are coming to the end of our series on James. James is a wonderful book, a challenge, where he comes and with no pretense, he basically says to us, folks, if you say that you love Jesus Christ, if you say that you believe in the gospel, it has to have an effect on how you live. There is no difference in James's understanding between one who says they're a Christian and one who says they're a disciple or a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. In our day and age, we can separate those two things. We can say, "Well, are you a Christian?" And in our country, what's the numbers? Something like eighty percent of people say, "Oh, I'm a Christian." But then there's this other demarcation where it says, oh, but only about 40% say they're born-again Christians. What does that mean? To say that you're a Christian means that you were born again. To say that you're a Christian means that you are following Christ in your life, that it is having some impact on the manner in which you live, that by his grace, by the justification that we have received in Christ through faith in his work alone, completed for us at Calvary, that we are now new creations in Christ Jesus, created for good works in him. Now, you see, it's not the opposite. Too many people have misunderstood James and said, oh, you've got to be a good person. You've got to get to work. You've got to do these good things, and then you get uh, to become a Christian. James is going, no, that's backwards. He never would have said that. But what he was saying was this. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will affect you. It will impact the manner in which you live your life. And he was writing to a group of people, and the context of it was not the pleasure of hanging out on a beautiful island or hanging out in Bluffton along the May River and just enjoying life. He was saying to people, you are living it out in a beautiful area. It was the Mediterranean Rim, don't get me wrong. It wasn't a far walk down to the bluest waters in all of the world. It wasn't a far piece to go up into the mountains and to look over and to see that. But what he was saying was in the middle of all of that, in the middle of the metropolitan parts of all of that new uh, world there, he's saying you are going to face difficulties. And don't pray that the Lord would remove the difficulties from you. Interesting if you study James, and we have. He doesn't say pray for your circumstances to be changed. He says, pray that in the middle of your very difficult circumstances that you would persevere. That you would be able to live a life for Jesus Christ. That you would be a shining example of his grace. That you would be able to stand firm in that day. Too many of us have a prayer life that says something like this, God, change the circumstances in which I find myself. Lord, get me out of this place. James was going, no, don't ask to get removed from it. Ask God in the middle of the difficulty to pour more of his spirit into you so that you can stand firm in that given situation and in the hopes that many would see you and come to faith in that Christ. And so we've been working through this, and now we're coming to the end Uh, The end of this where you would expect that he is going to sum it up with something very important, and he does. And he sums it up with this idea of prayer. 
And he's saying, now, as you've come to the end, now as you've seen yourself as a gathered people who are suffering in this world, who are having difficulties in this world, uh, and all those. And again, I was walking around this week. And I go and I sometimes just walk to try to, to think and to create uh, and to consider. It's hard for us to get into the mindset of a people who are suffering. It just is. I mean, even our suffering around here, most of us here, now there is some abject suffering going on. There are people who are in desperate need, but that isn't normally the DNA of our congregation yet. I hope one day it will be much more mixed. But for now, it's hard, and so you may turn your, eye, your ears off a little bit in the middle of this sermon. But what he's saying is if you find yourself just worn out, if you find yourself tired, of trying to live the Christian life, of trying to live this distinctively Christian life in a distinctively non-Christian world, if you find yourself there, then he has something to say to you today. So let me ask you this question as we begin, as a way of introduction. How many of you find yourselves at times, maybe not acutely right now, but you've found yourself at times as you've walked with Christ just tired, worn out, And James has something to say to you today. He has something to say to you today. God is speaking to you today. And so I want you to hear the words of James. The words of Jesus' brother. As he comes and he talks to us. This is the word of the Lord. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. The first thing that we need to see here together is a very simple statement. It's coming in the way of verses 16, 17, and 18, and it's this. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain. He prayed again, and it rained. This idea of prayer, I must admit to you, is a difficult one for me. I don't understand prayer. 
I wasn't raised in a house per se uh, that we prayed regularly as a family. My father was a pastor, uh, but it wasn't that we sat down and you would think that in pastor's homes uh, they just have these wonderful kumbaya moments where you just pray and everything. It's about that. Now, we understood prayer and we prayed about things. I can still remember one instance of my father believing in the power of prayer. He believed that statement that the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. If you go back to the old NAS or to the King James. He believed in the power of prayer. One funny story was Lisa and I were getting married. And uh, it was Saturday, June 13th, 1992. And I was driving around in our wonderfully beautiful 1990 Chevy Lumina. Four-door silver. It was the great car. Lisa looked into it and said, there's room for baby seats in the back. And so we bought it. And so, um, not because we had to at the moment. see that one going out. Oh, they bought a car for babies. Wonder what the story was. And I'm getting ready for our evening wedding, and I'm driving around Charlotte. And all of a sudden, I started to, as you would when you come to a red light, you put your foot on the brake. Well, somehow, all of a sudden, in this wonderful 1990 Chevy Lumina, the brake hit the horn. And so every time I touched the brake, the horn went off. And so I'm driving around Charlotte, North Carolina, going all over the place, and every time I came to a stop sign or to a stop like, and I'm looking at the people, sorry, sorry, and I came into my neighborhood, and I'm pulling into the neighborhood, horn blaring, and I pull into the driveway, and I'm blaring on the horn because i got to stop, and it's a downhill driveway, and my father comes running out, he goes, boy, what in the world is wrong with you? I said, Dad, it's the brake pad. He's like, it's the brake pad. You're right. I was like, Dad, no, really. He said, what's happening? And I said, every time I touch the brake, it goes off. Dad, it's our wedding day. We can't have this. Lisa's already been in a car wreck. It's been a crazy day. We've got so much going on. What is happening? And my father, believing this, believing in the power of prayer, put his hands on the hood of that car, and he said, Satan, leave my son alone today. Get out of here. And I was like, It never happened again. I don't know how it happened. I don't understand prayer. I don't know how a a, a godly man putting his hands on the hood uh, of a Chevy Lumina and calling out to the God of the universe and saying, Satan, you really need to leave my son alone. And Jesus, would you just protect my son today? He didn't do some big command and, and some incantation and all of that. He simply said, Jesus, take care of my son today. And Satan, you need to leave him alone. What James is saying is prayer is powerful. Whether you understand it fully or not, prayer has a power within it to affect this world. Uh, One pastor put it this way, praying puts a dent into this world. Praying has a positive impact uh, on this world. I remember studying in seminary, and there was in the fourth century uh, a wonderful pastor, so good, by the way, uh, that his nickname was Chrysostom, which means in the Greek, the golden-mouthed one, John of Antioch. You're a good preacher when they call you golden-mouthed. And John of Antioch preached a sermon on prayer, and in it he said this, the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has expelled demons. It has broken the chains of death. It has assuaged diseases. It has rescued cities from destruction. It has stopped the sun in its course. It has arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. 
There is in prayer an all-sufficient armory, a treasure undiminished, a mind never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by any storm. It's the root, the fountain, the mother of thousands of blessings. He understood that there was a power within prayer. And that's what James is writing. He was saying there that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Jesus in John chapter 14 was speaking to his disciples and made this unbelievable statement. He said, I'm going to be going away, but I'm going to leave my spirit with you. And I'm going to leave my spirit with you so that when you pray and you act in my name, you will do even greater things than I have done in this world. Have you considered that for a moment? That because of Jesus going away and our praying to him, that he will somehow, through the power of the Spirit, work out greater things than even he did in this world. Now, I don't know how that works. But I know that when Jesus speaks, he's telling the truth. And he says, when I go to the Father and you pray to me, everything came into the world Everything I came in the world to do, my power against sin and death is released into the world through prayer. It's released into the history through prayer is what he's saying. He's saying, because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You see, he's saying, I'm going away and I'm going to leave you here in this world. But I'm not leaving you alone. I'm leaving you with my spirit, and I'm leaving you with a connection to me, a direct connection, uh, not a mitigated co- uh, connection. Uh, I, you don't have to go through a mediator. Some of you may come through a, a Catholic background, and you have to go to a priest uh, to be your mediator to Christ. You have to go through Mary to be your mediator to the Son. What Jesus is saying is you need no mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, is what he says. And you have direct access to him through prayer. And he says, and when you pray in my name, when you call on me, I will, and I love the language, I will put a dent in this world. So many of us don't believe in the spiritual realities that are going on around us. We can't see them, therefore they're not there. We either give Satan way too much attention or we give him none at all. We give too much power to the spiritual realm or we give it no consideration at all. What James is trying to say is first and foremost, the foundation of the rest of this sermon and the rest of what we're talking about is this, prayer is powerful. Do you believe that? I would challenge you that you don't. And I would challenge you that I don't as well. Because if we really did, we would pray a whole lot more, wouldn't we? We would act less and we would pray more. We would plan less and we would pray more. And so we give assent to the power of prayer. But I know in my home, when things go difficult uh, and get a little edgy, my first response isn't, guys, let's pray. 
Guys, we need the king of the universe to come and intervene into whatever it is that's taking place here. We need this. When something's happening in one of my son's lives, I have to sadly admit that I don't fully believe in the power of prayer because if I did, I would just stop right there and say, God, would you act and move? I think it oftentimes. But to actually do it. So the first thing that James is wanting to say to us and to think about, again, the context of the people who were there. They didn't get to see James every week. They didn't get to see Paul every week. They didn't get to see the the guys hanging around and coming. Uh, They didn't have, you know, uh, multiple campuses and video feeds and all those different things. They had to believe in something. And he said this, folks, in the midst of your suffering, pray. Because God hears you and will act on your behalf. It's coming right out of the previous section that we talked about last week. So the first point, I think you've gotten it by now, is this. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. The second thing that I want you to see this morning may challenge you, and you may disagree with me, and that's okay, because uh, in studying and preparing for this, I found that there are wonderfully godly men and women who are divided uh, on this next statement. I believe that in this passage... What he is speaking of is prayer here is for the weary, not the physically sick. It's for the weary in spirit, not the physically sick. Read in verses 13 to 15. It doesn't mean that you don't pray for the physically sick. It doesn't mean that prayer doesn't have a healing aspect and you can pray for healing individuals. What I'm saying in this context, he's speaking about a different kind of people. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful or of good soul? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You see, the context of this whole passage is that, again, uh, of persecution. That you see in here that James is talking in verses 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The word that he uses here in verse 13 for suffering is the exact same word that he uses earlier in verse 10 as an example of suffering. As an example of suffering... It means to suffer ill treatment. Uh, Are any of you, he's basically saying this, are any of you being persecuted? Uh, That's what he's saying. Are any of you being abused? Are any of you being treated wickedly, including all kinds of bodily beatings? Any of you in distress or any of you? Let him turn to the Lord to find comfort. That's the idea. He's saying if you are or worn out, if you're tired, if if you're suffering in that way and you still have strength, turn to the Lord. Pray. Pray. That's the simple response. It seems so 
elementary and rudimentary. If you're experiencing difficulty in the, for the name of Christ, if you're experiencing difficulty in persecutions, which, by the way, again, we have a hard time in our church and in our country to understand persecution. I, I honestly can't tell you that I have ever been persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. I've been laughed at. I haven't gotten invited to some parties. Uh, I, I may not have been able to hang out with some people, uh, but to hang that on the wall with what some of these folks and our brothers and sisters uh, around the world have experienced, I really can't say that I have been persecuted for the name of Christ. But he's saying here, if you have been, if you're growing weary in, in the midst of all of this, he's saying, if you are there, if you are there, pray about it. So the main, uh, Jane, uh, John MacArthur said this, the main interpretive point that I want you to notice out of this verse 13 is that James is not concerned for prayer in relation to those who are physically sick. Consequently, as we approach uh, the rest of this area, he moves beyond the one who is simply suffering to the one who frankly has just lost the ability to endure that suffering. Because the next word that he uses here, he says, first, if you're suffering, pray. And then the next thing he says is any of you, are any among you sick? Now it would seem out of place in the context of a passage with suffering, with long suffering and patience and endurance to all of a sudden jump into physical healing. And so I don't think that's what James has in mind here. What he's saying in that word sick is a Greek word that can mean physically sick, but over and over and over again in the New Testament, in Acts and with Paul's writings, it means one who is basically worn out. Are you just desperately tired? Are you basically done? It's saying this, in fact, in the epistles and the Acts, it's used most of the time uh, for this kind of weakness. It primarily means to be weak, to be feeble, and to be impotent. To have lost all of your potency in life, altogether, spiritually speaking. In Romans 4.19, in Romans 14.1 and 2, in Romans 14.21, it's used to being weak in faith. In 1 Corinthians 8.9 and in 11 and 12, uh, it's used to being spiritually weak. In Romans 5, 6, it's used to being spiritually weak and the impotence of the unsaved. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one, it's used to refer to the weakness of personality. And so to all of a sudden jump and to change it in this context seems to be out of place. And so what James is really saying here is this. Have you ever just gotten tired? And so many of you raised your hands earlier. You just don't have it in you anymore. You've tried to live the Christian life, and I don't care what level it is. It can be elementary school. It can be through middle school and high school and college and all the difficulties of what comes as a young person in our culture to try to stand for Jesus Christ. And you just get worn out by having to say no over and over and over again and to feel isolated over and over again and over again, and you're a single person, and you want to be married, and you look, and you read in the scripture, and you say, I want to honor the Lord, and I want to do this, and you look around, and there are so seemingly few other single Christians walking with Jesus, and so you're willing to concede, or you're just so tired you're about to give up, or in your home, you've tried to love your spouse well, or your children well, or your parents well, 
and you've just come and you've come and you've come and you're just at the end of your rope. Any of you relate to me? And you know what you want to do at that moment? You just want to go to bed. You just want to go and you become like a child. And you want to pull the, the covers up and say, Lord, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And Lord, I'd really kind of like to die before I wake. Because I'd love for you my soul to take. I don't know that if I wake up tomorrow morning that I've got enough in me to stand any more. You've come into my office and you've shared that pain. You're living your life at that point. And James is saying to you at that moment, if you are sick, not physically sick, but if you are sick, if you are so weary that you have nothing left in you, he doesn't say, suck it up and pray. Notice that. He said for the person who's under distress and is suffering and still has some, some potency in them, you pray. But if you're laying on the roadside, if you're a soldier who's gone out and you have gotten shot up and you are worn out and you're on the beachhead and you are just filled with holes and you're bleeding, he's saying at that point something else has to happen. And that's where he then bleeds right into this next notion. First, prayer is powerful. Prayer is for the sick and the suffering and the weary. And prayer is communally understood communally, community understood. He said, if you are so sick and you are so tired and you can't even in and of yourself pray, there are some in your church who will pray for you. And they're called the shepherd elders. He said, if you are so tired that you don't even have words to pray, you go into Romans and you say, ah, the Spirit testifies with our spirit. And it, it speaks words and goes and testifies with the groanings of our heart. You ever been at that point in your life where all you've got for God is basically this? Or mm, that groaning? There is no vocabulary for that. The English language, the Greek language, the Arabic language, whatever language you want to pick, cannot gather that pain. It, it can't go down and figure that out. And so when you're at that point, it says there are within God's government of his church in the economy of his bride, elders, men set in places, not just of authority, but men who are called to shepherd the flock and to be so sensitive to the needs of the congregation that when they see an individual who is on the roadside, who is beat up, their first thing isn't going to be, I wonder what sin they did that caused them to get over there. But it says that they would come by and they would pray with and for that individual. You see, the idea uh, and the office of elder comes from the Lord, in, especially in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus, when it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the household of God? He must not be a recent convert, and he may become, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What it's saying of an elder is this, they're simply mature. They're not perfect, but they're mature. They're stronger. There's a strength within them. And so they can then come alongside in the word. I love the word that, you just, that is filled with gentleness. To come alongside, as Jesus did, he says, I will not snuff out a, a flickering wicker. And I will not break a bruised reed. And so the shepherd elders who in his place have those giftings will come alongside and they will pray for you. And that's something that I want to see us do more and more within our church. It has been so truncated that it's only for physical healing. But what I want to release you to, and elders, this may make your jobs busier, and I hope it does. What I want to release you, congregation, to is if you are suffering, and the weight of that suffering has gotten you to the point where you don't know if you can lift your head up, ask the elders to come and pray. And it says that they will come around you. I'm going to ask the elders of the church to do something for me right now. Don't just raise your hand. Stand up, men. Where you are, stand up. Congregation, these are, and this is not an applause, these are the men who you have over the course of time set into this place and ordained or set apart for this office. And so within this, I want you to see them and know them and know that you can get in touch with them and they can come and they will come into your homes, into where you are, and they will pray for you. And to you elders, I encourage and charge you, be sensitive to the needs of this flock. Know them so well that you know when they're (laughs) suffering. You can have a seat. And then it says in this that they will come and they will anoint you with oil. And we've made this sort of sacramental, that we've got the little olive oil in a thing and we bring it out and we touch your head and we even make a cross and we do that. that. That's not really what was, it wasn't a sacramental washing. The word that he uses for oil and the word that he uses there for anointing, uh, there's another word for anointing uh, that is to consecrate or to be used in a much higher reference. Uh, the word that he uses here is simply the word massage. Uh, and so what he's saying is uh, elders will come and they will rub, rub you down with oil. There's a mental picture for you. <laughs> Some of you are going, heck yeah, I can't afford a massage parlor. Hey, Andrew Ryan, Johnny Essery, right about there. Uh, work that little spot right there. That's not what it's saying. But what he's picking up on is the idea that back in that day and age, oil had a medicinal purpose. Oil had a soothing sense. There was a sense in which he's saying the elders are going to come around you and they'll anoint you with oil. Their prayers and their ministry to you will be soothing. It will be medicinal. It will care for your wounds. And if there are physical wounds, part of the role of the elder is to address them, to deal with the physical as well as the spiritual and emotional. And so it becomes very complex. But it's not just some sacramental little thing that we do over on the side. And then we get lost with this. And the prayer of faith 
the prayer of faith. What does that mean? Oh, well, if it doesn't happen, if you don't get healed, if you, if you don't, aren't better, that means you didn't have enough faith. So many of you have heard that, and it leads you to condemnation and to guilt. That's not, again, what James is talking about. He's saying a prayer of faith is a prayer of belief of saying, I just believe. You remember when the man came to Jesus and says, will you do this? And Jesus says, I will. And the man says, he says, do you believe? He says, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? Was that a prayer of faith? He admitted that he didn't believe. But he admitted he believed. Isn't that where we all are all the time? It's not that you have to have perfect faith. It may be that your faith is just about gone. And the elders come. And the body of Christ circles you. And prays believing that the Lord can move on your behalf. And that through prayer it makes a dent in this world. That the simple prayers prayed have eternal consequence. And so, if you're exhausted of walking with Christ. If you're tired and you're there. Call out for help. And there are usually two things that keep you from doing that. And the first is all on you. It is your pride. It is your pride and it is your arrogance that you cannot admit that you need anybody else's help. We watched 42 last night in our home, the story of Jackie Robinson. And there's a great scene when he's sitting with the young African-American writer and he looked at him and he says, I hate that I have to admit that I need you. And I thought, that is the problem with so many of us in the church. When I'm tired and worn out, I am terrified to tell you because guess what? Then you may look at me as less of a man, as less of a pastor, as less of a husband, as less of a dad. That's not good enough in your eyes. And so therefore you come and you say, hey McCutcheon, how you doing? And you know what our general biblical response is? I'm good. You? By the way, this isn't necessarily biblical. I'm good. Anthony, you good? Good, good. Well, my life privately is falling apart. I mean, my wife and I haven't talked for a month and a half, but that's okay, I'm good. Well, my kids are going nuts and all over the place, and I'm bankrupt, uh, and I've got addiction all over the place, but just for the sake of the conversation, I'm good. Your pride keeps you from finding the healing that God is offering you. So if you're wrestling with your pride, wrestle with it. And the second usual thing that happens within churches is there are not godly elders. There are boards of administrators who are here to make administrative decisions, but not elders in the biblical sense. And I want you to hear this from us. We are working very hard to make sure that the men who are in the places of these places of authority and of servanthood are men who match the biblical qualities that Christ gives us in his word. We want you to have that assurance. Because if you don't believe that, you will never invite one of them into your home. But if you believe that they're men who are pursuing the Savior and are a little farther maybe down the road than you, then you will. And so, pride and biblical eldership in the church, we have to wrestle with those things. Let's bring this all to an end. Jesus, the true good shepherd, the true elder, he made this statement. He said, are you weak and heavy laden? Then come unto me. 
Let me read for you from Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 to 30. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you had hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now listen. In light of this table, which is Jesus saying, let me massage the oil of my grace into the very marrow of your soul. Let me be your good shepherd and let me come to you and intercede on your behalf and pray for you as your great high priest. He says these words, come to me all you who labor. It doesn't mean you're sitting down and doing nothing, but you labor and you're heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.